Hi, listeners. Due to the unfortunate spread of COVID-19, ParCast has decided to temporarily halt recording this week. Although it saddens us to interrupt your listening experience, and we feel that it is a necessary precaution to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff. In the meantime, I do have some great news. In lieu of this week's installment of Unsolved Murders, I am delighted to share with you some captivating episodes from the ParCast series Female Criminals. Hosted by the extremely talented Vanessa Richardson, Female Criminals is chock full of mystery, intrigue, and oftentimes murder. So get ready to take a peek at the sordid life of Marjorie Congdon and ask yourself, was she responsible for her mother's death? Follow along and enjoy. You can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the podcast series Female Criminals on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, arson, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Employees at Wall's department store in Duluth, Minnesota, were used to seeing 12-year-old heiress Marjorie Congdon. She frequently came into the store alone for shopping sprees, but today was different. Marjorie's mother, 50-year-old Elizabeth Congdon, had called the store managers that morning to request they stop selling to her daughter unless she was present. Apparently, Marjorie had a bad habit of stealing money out of Elizabeth's purse. When Marjorie came into Walls and attempted to buy several cashmere sweaters, an apologetic cashier refused to ring them up. He explained that he had new instructions from management. It wouldn't do to anger a wealthy client like Elizabeth Congdon. Marjorie simmered. She didn't like rejection. She also didn't mind making a scene. She screamed at the embarrassed employees who denied her service. That night, after the store closed, a small fire ignited in the basement. The alarms went off early enough that the fire department was able to put it out without damaging the store. At the time, nobody could determine what ignited the flames. It was only later, when Marjorie Congdon was outed as a serial arsonist, that anyone made the connection between the girl's tantrum and the dangerous fire it sparked. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This is our first of two episodes on Marjorie Congdon, an alleged serial killer and arsonist. Many people in Marjorie's orbit met inexplicable and suspicious ends, but she was never convicted of murder. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In spite of a privileged childhood where she never wanted for anything, Marjorie Congdon was a troubled young woman. As an adult, she married three times. Her second husband, Roger Caldwell, was eventually convicted of murder after the violent death of Marjorie's mother, Elizabeth. Roger long maintained that Marjorie committed the murder herself and framed him. Some suspect that Marjorie manipulated Roger into killing her mother, but this has never been proven. Like her husband, Marjorie was tried for her mother's murder, but she was found not guilty. After her acquittal, Marjorie was a suspect in three other mysterious deaths, but never went to trial. She was, however, eventually convicted for fraud and multiple times for arson. This week, we'll explore Marjorie's early life. We'll break down the events that led to her first alleged murder and the subsequent trial. We'll also explore how Marjorie was then emboldened to escalate her violent behavior. Next week, we'll explore Marjorie's third marriage and the string of mysterious deaths that followed her. We'll delve into the factors that allowed Marjorie to continue avoiding convictions, even in cases where the evidence of her guilt appeared clear-cut. Marjorie Congdon was born on July 14, 1932, on the East Coast, possibly in New York, although some sources say it was Tarboro, North Carolina. Little is known about her birth mother, except that she was unwed. When she was three months old, she was adopted by 38-year-old Elizabeth Congdon, an heiress to a mining fortune. Some rumors suggest that Marjorie's adoptive mother and birth mother were the same woman, and the adoption was just a polite fiction to protect Elizabeth's reputation, but there's no evidence to confirm this. Elizabeth didn't inform any of her family or friends of her adoption plans until after she came home to Duluth, Minnesota with the baby girl. She was unmarried, which made her a surprising choice of adoptive mother in the 1930s. However, she had resources. Heir to the fabulous Congdon Taconite fortune, Elizabeth demonstrated that she could easily provide for a baby, husband or not. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology from here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. A paper titled New Family Structure Study by sociologist Mark Regneris compared single mothers to traditional two-parent households. As adults, children raised by single mothers were more likely to need therapy, less likely to pursue higher education, and generally struggled to form healthy relationships. While economic disadvantage was one factor in these children's lifestyle, even children of financially stable mothers tended to suffer some ill effects. Elizabeth raised Marjorie in the massive Glensheen Mansion, a sprawling three-story, 39-room home on the shore of Lake Superior. In 1935, when Marjorie was three, Elizabeth adopted again. Marjorie's new baby sister was named Jennifer. Even as a child, Marjorie struggled to connect with other people. 
She wasn't close to her sister or other family members, and she rarely made friends at school. The staff at Glensheen found it strange that even as a young girl, Marjorie ignored her sister to play alone quietly. What she lacked in social relationships, Marjorie made up for with possessions. Elizabeth showered gifts on her daughter, and Marjorie, in turn, grew accustomed to always having what she wanted when she wanted it. Columbia University's Sunia S. Luther explored how affluence impacted children of rich parents. She found that depression, anxiety, and substance abuse were common even among children with economic advantage. In fact, in some cases, wealthy children were more likely to have emotional problems or break the law than traditionally at-risk children. As she got older, Marjorie grew into an emotional adolescent, prone to outbursts. By the time she was 12 in 1944, Marjorie developed a habit of stealing cash from Elizabeth's purse. When Elizabeth caught on to her daughter's thievery, she contacted local shops and ordered them to not sell anything to Marjorie without her permission. Marjorie responded by learning to forge Elizabeth's signature. She signed a fake letter from Elizabeth granting her permission and continued her shopping sprees. According to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, it's not uncommon for a child to steal as a cry for attention or to try to impress peers. But when stealing becomes a pattern of behavior, as it did for teenage Marjorie, it's often a sign of a deeper emotional disturbance. Marjorie's severe emotional problems were all too clear by the time she was 13 or 14, when Elizabeth bought her a horse named Greyhound. At first, Marjorie loved to go on rides with Greyhound outside the Glensheen estate. But after a few months, Marjorie was bored with the horse. She informed Elizabeth that she no longer wanted to care for Greyhound. Days later, one of the Congdon's employees entered the stables to find Marjorie forcefully shoving oats into Greyhound's mouth. He said, hey Marjorie, Greyhound doesn't look all that hungry right now. Startled, Marjorie dropped the oats. She stared at the employee, wide-eyed and nervous. And then, without a word, Marjorie ran out of the barn. The employee cleaned up the oats, only to find several dozen pills mixed in with the horse's food. He didn't know what kind of pills they were, but the employee had his suspicions. Marjorie was trying to poison her horse. The employee immediately reported what he discovered to Elizabeth. But as was habitual for the heiress, she heard him out and then handled the matter quietly. Greyhound was placed with a new owner, and the employee never learned if Marjorie was confronted about her actions. After the horse poisoning incident, Elizabeth enrolled Marjorie in a Massachusetts boarding school. Initially, Marjorie's grades improved, but she still struggled to make friends. When Marjorie returned home during a break, she resumed her habit of stealing money from Elizabeth's purse. It was then that Elizabeth realized she needed to take more drastic steps to bring Marjorie in line. In 1949, when Marjorie was 16, she was committed to Kansas's Menninger Clinic. There, she received a diagnosis. Marjorie Congdon was a sociopath. According to the DSM, sociopathy is an outdated term for a condition now known as antisocial personality disorder, or APD. 
people with APD have few or no reservations about lying, cheating, or manipulating others to get what they want. According to the Mayo Clinic, the cause of APD is unknown, but it's believed to arise due to a combination of genetics and an unstable childhood environment. APD cannot be cured, but the proper application of discipline and therapy can help children manage and control their symptoms before they reach adulthood. Mental illness was even more taboo in 1949 than it is today. So even though Marjorie was lucky enough to have a mother with the wealth and connections to get her proper treatment for her APD, Elizabeth was too afraid of scandal to get Marjorie the help she needed. She thought she could ignore her daughter's troubles and hoped they would go away on their own. Instead, Marjorie's mental illness would get worse and her erratic behavior would turn dangerous. In time, Elizabeth would pay for her mistake with her life. Coming up, Marjorie builds a family and plots to kill her mother. Now, back to the story. In 1949, after a childhood marked by petty crimes and violent outbursts, 16-year-old Marjorie Congdon was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. When her mother, Elizabeth, learned of Marjorie's diagnosis, she chose not to treat it, wanting to avoid scandal. In 1950, 18-year-old Marjorie enrolled in Washington University in St. Louis. There, she met 24-year-old insurance executive Dick Leroy. They were quickly engaged. On June 30th, 1951, Dick and Marjorie were married in the Glensheen Mansion. Marjorie gave birth less than a year later. She threw herself into her role as a mother and housewife. For years after her marriage, her home in Minneapolis was in a constant state of renovation as Marjorie personally replaced all the fixtures and repainted all the walls. It wasn't enough to have the perfect home. Marjorie also needed to present the perfect family to the world. A friend explained, her children were always dressed like out of a magazine ad, starched and pressed. But behind the scenes, Marjorie was frantic about holding together the picture-perfect family, and maintaining appearances was expensive. Dick's modest salary increased when he was promoted to management at his insurance company. In addition, on her 25th birthday in 1957, Marjorie gained access to the trust her mother set up for her. Even still, Marjorie's spending exceeded her means. On one occasion, Marjorie lied to Dick when he confronted her with the credit card bill. She blamed some of the larger charges on her mother. But when Dick contacted Elizabeth, she denied Marjorie's claims. She had her own fortune. She didn't need to borrow money from her daughter. In fact, it was decidedly the other way around. Several times over the years, Elizabeth gifted Dick large sums to help him make ends meet. And while he struggled to stay afloat financially, Dick continued to lose patience with Marjorie's extravagant spending and her lies about where the money went. By 1960, Marjorie and Dick had been married nine years and had seven children. It was then that 28-year-old Marjorie decided she wanted to redecorate their home with authentic 18th century antiques. Dick refused. They didn't have the money. 
A few weeks after this conversation, Dick and the children came home after Marjorie had been alone in the house. They were astonished to find that all of their furniture had been ripped apart. Marjorie claimed that the family dog had done the damage, but it was clear to Dick that someone had made clean cuts with a knife. Despite Dick's doubts about Marjorie's story, he stood by while she filed a claim with their insurance company. With the payout, Marjorie redecorated in her preferred theme, 18th century antiques. In 1962, 30-year-old Marjorie became obsessed with competitive figure skating. She enrolled all seven of her children in skating lessons, and the family's debt exploded as Marjorie purchased equipment and costumes and traveled all over the state for competitions. Just as Marjorie had been fixated on her house, she was also consumed by her children's competitive edge. She permitted her children to cut class to get in more practice time. When the school threatened to charge them with truancy, she allegedly bribed the administrators. Additionally, she harshly heckled other competitors who rivaled her own children's success. On one occasion, a young girl's skates went missing right before she was supposed to compete against Marjorie's daughter. Another time, a front-runner skater was in a severe accident after someone allegedly tampered with his skates, dulling the edge so he'd have less control. In both instances, Marjorie's children secured victories after their competitors were eliminated. Through all this, Marjorie's husband, Dick, grew to believe that the competitive skating was harming his children. He worried that they were taking the wrong lessons from Marjorie's cutthroat tactics. He also suspected that some of his children wanted to quit, but feared saying so because Marjorie would lash out. As time went on, Dick grew increasingly convinced that Marjorie didn't have her children's best interests at heart. On April 29, 1971, after 20 years of marriage, Dick filed for divorce. Marjorie was 39. She couldn't imagine losing her picture-perfect family and having to rebuild everything from scratch. Shortly after the divorce, Marjorie and Dick's house caught fire and burned to the ground. An extensive investigation led the police to suspect Marjorie had burned it down herself, but they couldn't charge her due to a legal loophole. Marjorie never filed an insurance claim, and at the time there was no law against destroying her own property so long as she didn't financially benefit from it. After Marjorie lost her home, she relocated to Colorado. By this point, most of her seven children were adults, but four teenagers continued to live with her. More family struggles would soon follow. Marjorie's adoptive mother, Elizabeth Congdon, suffered a severe stroke at the age of 71. She survived, but the right side of her body was completely paralyzed. In November of 1973, Marjorie went to visit her mother. She brought a jar of homemade marmalade with her. This was an odd choice of a gift as Elizabeth was diabetic and couldn't eat something as sugary as marmalade. But Marjorie insisted that Elizabeth share a marmalade sandwich with her. When Elizabeth declined, citing her dietary restrictions, Marjorie pushed the issue. Finally, Elizabeth's nurse intervened. She didn't want to see a fight break out, so she assured Elizabeth that it was okay to eat one small sandwich. 
Marjorie prepared the sandwiches and then sat and ate with her mother. After the meal and a brief conversation, Marjorie left. She took the remaining marmalade with her. That night, Elizabeth slipped into a coma. When her nurse arrived the next morning, she was frightened to find that Elizabeth wouldn't wake up. By the time a doctor arrived, Elizabeth was awake but confused. Her blood pressure and pulse were dangerously low. The doctor took a blood sample to try to determine what had caused the episode. Tests showed that Elizabeth suffered from an overdose of a tranquilizer called meprobamate. Elizabeth's nurse remembered Marjorie's insistence that Elizabeth eat a marmalade sandwich. But by now, the sandwiches and the marmalade were long gone, and there was no way to test for poison. Marjorie must have been devastated to learn of Elizabeth's recovery. She even reportedly told a friend she was disappointed not to receive her greatly needed inheritance. For her entire life, Marjorie had blamed Elizabeth for all of her problems. She believed she'd be free with Elizabeth's death. Dr. Donald W. Black of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine explained in an interview that people with APD tend to externalize guilt. Even when caught doing something wrong, a person with APD will blame their victims for creating a situation where the wrongdoer feels compelled to harm them. While she grappled with her mother's recovery, the divorced Marjorie also concluded that she didn't like being single. She missed being a housewife. In 1976, 44-year-old Marjorie started attending meetings hosted by Parents Without Partners, a group for single parents. There, she met Roger Caldwell. Roger was a raging alcoholic, and his uncontrolled drinking was a major factor in his first divorce. It also led him to lose custody of his children. Marjorie and Roger had both weathered failed marriages and found a kindred spirit in each other. They married on March 20th, 1976, only two months after they met. Just as Marjorie's unhindered spending drove a rift between her and her first husband, soon Marjorie and Roger found themselves deep in debt. Their new marriage strained under financial pressure. In addition, Marjorie grew fed up with Roger's drinking. In early June of 1977, she convinced a doctor to write her a prescription for a drug called Antabuse. It's not clear what the official reason was for her prescription, but Marjorie didn't take the pills herself anyway. Antabuse reacts poorly with alcohol. If a patient mixes the two, he'll experience symptoms that are very similar to a heart attack, and the reaction can be fatal. Every morning, Marjorie made Roger take Antibuse with his breakfast. He knew that if he drank while he was on the medicine, he would get very sick and that he might die. The pills gave him the extra incentive he needed to finally get sober, at least for a few weeks. With Roger's drinking problem temporarily solved, Marjorie turned her attention to her money issues. On June 16, 1977, 45-year-old Marjorie hired an attorney to investigate legal issues related to the Congdon estate. Marjorie wouldn't inherit until Elizabeth's death. Her attorneys hadn't heard of any sudden change in Elizabeth's condition, and they wondered at Marjorie's sudden interest in the state of her inheritance. But they went to work 
per her instructions. A few weeks later, on June 24th, Marjorie called another lawyer. She wanted to update her will. If she died or was injured, she wanted Roger to receive half of Marjorie's inheritance from Elizabeth. On June 26th, Roger flew to Minneapolis. At the airport, he rented a car, then allegedly drove two and a half hours north to Duluth, where Elizabeth lived. That night, an intruder broke a window in Elizabeth Congdon's home. The sound didn't wake Elizabeth, and the intruder was able to enter the house unimpeded. As they climbed the stairs to Elizabeth's bedroom, the intruder encountered Elizabeth's nurse, Velma Pietela, on the staircase. When they spotted one another, the intruder attacked Velma, striking her with a candlestick. The blow left Velma stunned. She fell onto a window seat and sat down, but her attacker didn't relent. They struck her again and again, ultimately bludgeoning the nurse a total of 23 times with the candlestick. Once Velma was neutralized, her attacker crept into Elizabeth's bedroom, where she was asleep. She may have awakened, but she didn't have an opportunity to scream before the intruder pressed a satin pillow over her face. After killing the old woman, the intruder raided the jewelry box. They stole several pieces of jewelry and an antique gold coin. Then they drove away from Glensheen Mansion in Velma's car. They didn't stop driving until they reached the Minneapolis airport parking lot. The next morning, June 27th, Elizabeth's day nurse, Mildred Garvey, arrived to relieve Velma. The first thing she saw when she entered the mansion was Velma's legs hanging off the window seat on the stairs. This didn't alarm Mildred. She assumed the night nurse had laid down for a brief nap. But as she got closer, Mildred realized that her first instinct was dead wrong. Barefoot and covered in blood, Velma wasn't just napping. Mildred lifted Velma's arm to take her pulse. She could already tell Velma was dead from her clammy skin and limp arm. Mildred ran into Elizabeth's room to check on her. She confirmed that Elizabeth, too, had died during the night. Her bedsheets were disarrayed, suggesting a struggle. Mildred sprinted back down the stairs just in time to see Elizabeth's maid arriving for the start of her shift. Mildred announced that Miss Congdon was dead. This didn't surprise the maid, who was well aware of Elizabeth's advanced age and health issues. She said, heart attack, probably. Mildred replied, no, she's been murdered. And Velma is dead, too. As the maid began to panic, Mildred dialed 911 to report what she'd seen. Soon, the police arrived. The same morning, Elizabeth's youngest adopted daughter, 42-year-old Jennifer, received a phone call that her mother had been murdered. The first words out of her mouth were, Marjorie did it. Next, we'll explore the investigation into Elizabeth Congdon's death. Now, back to the story. On June 30th, 1977, 45-year-old Marjorie Congdon Caldwell, her sister Jennifer, and other mourners hosted a private service at Glen Sheen Mansion. While the family wanted to keep the funeral small, press gathered outside the estate. 
83-year-old Elizabeth Congdon's murder was a big story, and reporters wanted to catch whatever details they could about the family's grief. Meanwhile, the police were closing in on Marjorie's husband, Roger Caldwell, as their top suspect. The police knew he'd flown to Minnesota the same day Elizabeth was murdered. They had also intercepted a mail envelope postmarked from Duluth and addressed to Roger. It contained the gold coin that had gone missing from Elizabeth's home. The envelope was printed with the logo of the Radisson Hotel, the same hotel Roger checked into the night Elizabeth died. Even more compelling, the police were able to pull a fingerprint from the envelope that matched Roger's. Marjorie and Rogers stayed in Minnesota at least a week after Elizabeth's funeral. On July 5th, 1977, the police searched their hotel room at the Holiday Inn in Bloomington. Police found jewelry and several other items that fit the exact description of what had gone missing from Elizabeth's room. It was almost a little too easy to connect Roger to Elizabeth's death. Meanwhile, Roger began drinking again, even while he continued to take antabuse. It had been too much to expect the raging alcoholic to quit cold turkey, especially while he dealt with the stress of Elizabeth's funeral. On the evening of July 6th, one night after the police searched Roger's hotel room, he collapsed and checked into a hospital. The next day, July 7th, Roger went from a hospital bed straight to handcuffs. He was charged with murdering Elizabeth Congdon. While police zeroed in on Roger as a suspect, Marjorie's children and her sister, Jennifer, had other suspicions. In September 1977, the family filed a civil suit against Marjorie. They charged her with killing Elizabeth and demanded the entirety of her inheritance. Marjorie contested the charges, launching what would become a multi-year lawsuit. But meanwhile, she couldn't receive her greatly needed $8 million inheritance. While she fought for her money, Marjorie remained broke and in debt after years of compulsive spending. When Roger's murder trial began, his legal team argued that he was framed. They didn't have any theories about who'd done the framing, but the evidence was clear. It made no sense to steal Elizabeth's jewelry, take it home to Colorado, then carry it back to Minnesota with him for the funeral. The only reason to do that was if he'd intended for the police to find the evidence, or if someone else planted it in his room for the police to find. Roger's lawyers also questioned why Roger would go to all the trouble of killing Elizabeth, stealing a gold coin, and then mailing it to himself, leaving a paper trail. It made it a little too convenient for investigators to pin the crime on Roger. The jury didn't buy the story about a conspiracy to frame Roger. They found him guilty and sentenced Roger to two life sentences for his two murders. Marjorie was shocked when, on July 11th, just three days after Roger's conviction, police arrived at her home with an arrest warrant. From the beginning of his investigation, Chief Prosecutor John DeSanto always suspected that Marjorie plotted Elizabeth's murder with Roger. As he explained in his autobiography, we always believed, and the whole theory of the case was, that she was the woman behind the man. 
Now that DeSanto had secured Roger's conviction, he wanted to go after the big fish. He was convinced that Marjorie had planted the damning evidence so her husband would take the fall, and he was going to make sure Marjorie didn't get away with her crime. In July of 1978, Marjorie Congdon Caldwell stood trial for two counts of murder and two counts of conspiracy to murder. The press went wild over the new wrinkle in the case, and Marjorie discovered that she loved the attention they paid her. In spite of her lawyer's instructions not to give statements, Marjorie regularly chatted with journalists before and after her trial and during recesses. The 46-year-old mother was soon a favorite with the press and the jury. Marjorie baked a chocolate cake and brought it to court to share with a lawyer on his birthday. She brought a knitting project from home, which she worked on during the trial. Whatever was going on under the surface, on the outside, Marjorie looked like a harmless portrait of domesticity. According to the Mayo Clinic, people with APD can be very charming when they want to be. As a result, they're often skilled manipulators, quite adept at cultivating the image they want to project. Outside of the courtroom, Marjorie lost some friends, but others came forward to support her. She especially relied on Wally and Helen Hagen, a couple she'd known for decades. Wally and Helen never believed that Marjorie could kill her own mother. Marjorie's murder trial lasted for four months. At that time, the longest murder case in Minnesota history. On June 21st, 1979, the judge issued his verdict. Marjorie Congdon was acquitted on all four counts of murder and conspiracy to murder. The mild-mannered, cake-baking, knitting housewife had struck a chord of sympathy with the jurors, who couldn't bring themselves to convict such a sweet woman. A study conducted by the University of Nebraska's Brian H. Bornstein and Edie Green explained that jurors will often compare witness testimony to their own personal experiences and beliefs. Then, when weighing conflicting information, jurors will tend to sympathize with testimony and evidence that fits their own preconceived notions. In Marjorie's case, that meant that she was able to appeal to jurors' notions of femininity and motherhood. She reminded jurors of the harmless women in their own lives, and as a result, it seemed impossible that sweet Marjorie Congdon Caldwell could be a murderer. On June 21st, Marjorie stepped out of the courthouse a free woman. When a reporter asked her how she would celebrate, Marjorie answered that she planned to go to White Castle. Plenty of prosecutors weren't falling for her act, but without a conviction, there was nothing more they could do. Officially, Marjorie was nothing but a harmless woman who'd lost her dear mother to her husband's greed. During the first five years of Roger's prison sentence, Marjorie only visited him once. That would make sense if she really believed he'd killed her mother. But in Marjorie's occasional statements to the press, she continually emphasized that she believed he was innocent. According to the DSM-4, people with APD have little or no concern for the well-being of others and are willing to lie or manipulate to get what they want. People with APD rarely feel remorse for their actions. In other words, if Marjorie really did conspire with Roger to murder Elizabeth, she didn't feel bad about it afterward. 
nor did she feel any loyalty to Roger now that he was of no use to her, locked away behind bars. The date isn't known, but at some point after her trial, Marjorie and her friend Wally Hagen began to have an affair. She wanted to forget her old life and start over again with Wally. But there were two problems. First, Marjorie was still legally married to Roger Caldwell. They weren't regularly speaking, but Marjorie never got around to filing for a divorce. The second problem was that Wally too was still married and divorce simply wasn't an option for him. His wife, Helen, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. In 1979, after Marjorie's trial concluded, she'd relocated to assisted living, where she had access to a full team of nurses and doctors. One day, Helen's daughter Nancy visited her at the assisted living facility. It was one of Helen's good days, and the pair sat together and chatted. During their conversation, Helen voiced her suspicions that Wally was having an affair with Marjorie, but Nancy knew that paranoia was one of the symptoms of Alzheimer's, so she ignored Helen's concerns. Then, on March 26, 1980, Marjorie paid Helen a visit. At some earlier point, Marjorie had convinced the staff that she, at 47 years old, was the daughter of 64-year-old Helen. So when Marjorie arrived late in the evening to see her mother, the staff led her to Helen's room without question. During Marjorie's visit, one nurse noticed her feeding Helen something out of a jar. The nurse didn't think anything of it at the time. She had no way of knowing that seven years before, Marjorie had allegedly fed her mother poisoned marmalade. That murder attempt had failed, but Marjorie had learned from her past efforts. The morning after Marjorie's visit, Helen's nurses were unable to wake her. She was in a coma and unresponsive. They called the person listed as Helen's primary point of contact, Marjorie, but there was no answer. Nancy didn't learn of her mother's condition until 10.30 a.m. She was the third person to receive a call from the nursing home after Marjorie and Wally both failed to answer the phone. Nancy was baffled by the news because her mother didn't have any medical conditions besides Alzheimer's. There was no reason for the mostly healthy Helen to slip into a coma without warning. Helen died on March 30th, 1980 just four days after Marjorie's visit. Her autopsy report said that she died of pneumonia and dehydration. The coroners didn't perform a toxicology examination. Nancy was suspicious. First, Marjorie's mother died right when Marjorie needed the inheritance. And now, after an alleged affair, Marjorie seemed to have eliminated the one rival for Wally's romantic attention. It seemed unbelievable but Nancy feared that her father was dating a serial killer. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Marjorie's story and her further descent into criminality. We'll explore the string of mysterious deaths and fires that followed Marjorie during and after her relationship with Wally and discuss the factors that allowed her to allegedly get away with murder. 
You can find more episodes of Female Criminals as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 